You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Most people will tell you that all open and or monogamous relationships are doomed to failure because all the couples, every single couple that they've known who were in an open relationship, even couples that had just – one three-way, just once, all those couples, they all wind up getting divorced or breaking up. But here's the thing. Almost everyone knows at least one couple in a successful open and or monogamous relationship, but they don't know they know them. Because most couples in successful open and or monogamous relationships, particularly the straight ones, they're not out about the fact that their relationships are open and or monogamous. People typically find out that a couple was open and or monogamous and or having the occasional three-way if and when that couple divorces or breaks up. If a couple in an open and or monogamous relationship doesn't divorce or break up, if the openness in fact contributes to the stability of their marriage, if it makes them happier in their marriage, no one ever finds out they're in an open marriage or an open relationship or a monogamous relationship. So yeah, people know couples in successful Open relationships. They just don't know they know them because those couples are not out. And that couple, if you're sitting there and you don't know any couples in successful open and or monogamous relationships, if you're telling yourself you don't know any, that couple could be your parents or it could be your pastor. Slate this week had a really great letter. They actually asked their readers to write in with solutions you may have found to the problem of monogamy. Nice to see it referred to as a problem once in a while. Experiments that you've tried that have failed and perhaps a defense of sexual fidelity itself, <laughs> the prompting, leading the witness there. And they write that many responded and the very first one they ran is from a pastor in a mainline traditional church, preaches weekly, often leads Bible study. His church is not liberal, uh, not, nor is it fundamentalist uh, or decidedly conservative, but it's in the American Midwest. And he says they're happy. They have one child. They live a clean – I'm quoting here – a clean community-oriented lifestyle and about once a year we get together with friends who are also pastors and have group sex and on this letter goes. My favorite part of the letter is this. As a pastor, I've had members of my church confess to me that they have been involved in group sex. They come to me with a sense of remorse. This puts me in a bit of a theological conundrum. But at the end of the day, my wife and I are happy. He doesn't say then what he tells these people. He doesn't come out to them certainly. He's totally closeted about this. But he doesn't say what he tells. I wonder if he just toes the line and says, ooh, group sex, very, very bad. Jesus crying, knowing that once a year he travels to see pastor friends and their wives and they all swap pastor wives. There is a reality show in this somewhere. But this proves what I'm always ranting about because I get this all the time. Anytime I tell somebody that maybe openness would be good for them or maybe you know a little allowance, a little accommodation for outside sexual contact might be the, the thing that makes their marriage last. It might be actually the thing that would save their marriage. I get a million letters from people saying, oh, no, no, no. All open relationships fail because everyone I've ever heard about failed. Invariably, people hear about them after they fail. Which means while it worked, you didn't hear about it or if it's always going to work, if it's what's going to keep this couple together forever, you're never going to know. You know people. We all know people in successful open relationships. We just don't know it because they're not out. 
There is social monogamy, which many people are very successful at. They appear to be socially monogamous. They look monogamous. They act monogamous. They are pair bonded. And then there is sexual monogamy. These are two different things. You can be successfully socially monogamous. That's what this couple is, this pastor and his wife writing on Slate. They are socially monogamous and successfully so. But they are not sexually monogamous. I don't want to say they are not successfully monogamous. I want to say they are successfully not monogamous. It works for them, makes them happy, makes their marriage stronger. Too bad the pastor can't be out about it. Too bad when his congregates come to him and say, oh, we had a three-way, we had group sex and we feel like baby Jesus is never going to stop throwing up. He can't tell them that baby Jesus doesn't give a shit because if baby Jesus really gave a shit, God would have sent a tornado to his church years ago and wiped that fucker out. Anyway, just one of my hobby horses. Had to rant away. This came out this morning right before we sat down to record the podcast. Ah, it makes me crazy. This thing on Slate came out this morning and you know what came in the mail this morning? At the, almost the same moment I read this piece, a letter from someone explaining to me that there's no such thing as a successful open relationship, that all open relationships are doomed to failure. It ain't so. Those things that you're liable to read in your Bibles ain't necessarily so. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old straight female in a relationship with a wonderful man. Um, we've only been together about a month, but he happens to be in a 12-step program called Adult Children of Alcoholics. Um, I don't know if you know anyone who's ever been in this organization, but he's got a lot of the stereotypical attributes of an adult child of an alcoholic or an abusive parent um, around dominance, control, and perfectionism. Um, in 99% of our relationships, he's got that all under control, so to speak. He's very sweet and wonderful and treats me exceptionally well. Where it does come out is in the bedroom, and particularly when it comes to me giving feedback of any kind. Uh, he tends to shut down. Um, the sex tends to stop, and he'll put his hands over his face and say that he feels rejected. Yet he will communicate about that. He knows that it goes back to his issues. He knows that it's not me. And he doesn't blame me or get angry at me for giving him feedback. He just has an emotional reaction and then communicates that he's having an emotional reaction and wants to process it. And then after a few minutes, he will come back and say, okay, what do you like in bed? What do you mean by this? What do you mean by less pressure? What do you mean by slower? You know, and he does come back and ask me those questions. So since we've been having sex, it has actually gotten a lot better due to our good communication. But I was wondering if you had any tips or knew anyone who could give some feedback on just how to communicate with someone who's going through this. So basically the only problem here is when you give him any sexual feedback, he has this kind of moment of perhaps because he had alcoholic parents or whatever, hurt fifis and he shuts down a little bit, but he powers through that. There's really no problem here. This is just a little quirk in your boyfriend of only a month that you guys are working on together and you shouldn't be inhibited about giving him feedback. You know, one of the strategies of children of alcoholics, according to my mom, who's a child of an alcoholic, uh, was to, you know, have these reactions to family dramas in a way to, to hopefully head them off at the past, to send these signals that you want this, whatever it is, to stop. And he clearly wants this 
your feedback to stop, but you have a right as his sex partner to give him feedback. It is crucial. It is necessary that he be able to listen to his sex partners and you are that person right now. Uh, when they have something to say about desire, performance, technique, pain, uh, discomfort, elation, also give positive feedback, mix in some strokes, maybe he'll stop freaking out. So you just have to ignore this shit. You know, give him some feedback, let him have his moment of hurt fifis, and just sort of smile at him, pat him on the head, and keep fucking going. And once you get it through his head that having this reaction isn't going to stop you from giving constructive criticism and effusive praise, it's likely to stop. And you know what? Even if it never stops, who the fuck gives a shit? Just give him the feedback that he needs to hear and ignore the flinching because uh, you got to. You got to be able to give feedback. You got to be able to talk about this shit. Hey, Dan. I have an etiquette question for you. I've been in a long-term relationship with a queer, with a bisexual woman, kinky, for four-plus years now. Uh, I am also bi and kinky. She's poly. Um, and, frankly, our sex life kind of died a year ago. We keep on trying to resuscitate it, but, you know, through the vigorous application of the paddles, literally and figuratively, nothing's really happening. She's going to law school in two months, and I, I don't know that, you know, she were, we were talking about doing long-term, uh, long-distance, long-term, and now I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I bug her as much as I once did. You know, I, I was the first one to talk about marriage two years ago, uh, and since then, had sort of been like, and now I'm not so sure. So, I don't know. I don't know what to do. But my etiquette question is this. Do I, if I'm going to break up with someone, and if you have an opinion about that, please share. Um, but if you're going to break up with someone, do you break up with them before you're in different locations? Or do you wait until she's in another city and I'm in my own place and do it then. I should mention that we're also living together and have been for most of the last two years. And, uh, you know, if I break up with her now, it basically means I'm homeless. So appreciate your thoughts. Well, I certainly don't think you should make yourself homeless. And while I generally believe that when you're ready to break up with somebody, when you've made up your mind, when you know that's what you're going to have to do or must do, that you should fucking do it. Because on top of being dumped, it sucks to realize that the person who dumped you wanted to dump you two months ago, six months ago, a year ago. And then you think back on all those moments where you were saying, I love you, or you were having sex, and you think, holy fucking shit. They were saying that. I was saying that. They didn't mean it. I meant it. How humiliating. Oh my god, we were fucking, and he was done with me. How humiliating. And you don't like to compound someone's pain at being dumped with the humiliation of all these realizations that you were going through the motions while they were still feeling it. That said, this is a really difficult situation. You shouldn't make yourself homeless. You have to be strategic about dumping people. And I've said that to lots of people, men and women, gay and straight. you got to be strategic. You don't want to wind up on the streets. But also you need to weigh you know, what's in the best interest of this woman that you like and you liked well enough to think about marrying and you don't want to devastate her. And I'm just trying to game this out in my head. You know, If you – Dump her right before she leaves or the minute she gets there. She's going to be starting law school really in a state of perhaps emotional turmoil. She was still into you, still loved you. And that might not be the best frame of mind for her to begin 
the onerousness that is law school, all those studies and classes and everything. So maybe it would be better to wait until she was there and settled and got her footing uh, and then dump her ass. But then you might be interrupting a more difficult period of study a couple of months down the road. I don't know what to tell you. I really don't. I think – I'm trying to think what I would want if I were her. And I think what I would want is a very slow Band-Aid tearing off that had – where my – you know being in law school was being taken into consideration. Uh, where I would want you know us to agree to be long distance and then for kind of a chill to settle in and this hopefully mutual realization to begin to grow that you've both moved on. And hopefully by the time the Band-Aid is fully off, she will have new friends. She will have distractions. She'll be settled and she'll be kicking it with her studies. Sorry, I sound like a 15-year-old 10 years ago. I was saying kicking it, but whatever. She'll be, she'll be in the swing of things. And so the loss of you, she's already going to lose the place where she's lived. She'll be in a new environment. She's going to lose contact with all of her friends and family. And the loss of you at the beginning might be too much. But the loss of you six months in, maybe not so traumatic. So I would wait. Let her get settled. Let her make some friends. Let her get the studies underway. Wait, three months, six months? Don't say – not six months, three months, four months. Don't say anything in that time about marriage. Don't say anything – don't throw around a lot of I love yous. Don't go for a visit to fuck her. Make sure that's not possible. And if you are facing homelessness, if you break up with her now, I'm sure flying out to wherever she's going to law school is probably – Financially impossible for you. So don't do it. Don't do it if she offers you a ticket. Don't fuck her. And after three or four months when you're sure that she's made some friends and has some support at school and some new folks that she can lean on or rely on, you send that uh, dear attorney letter, dear future attorney letter, letting her down. Queasy. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm a 34-year-old queer woman in a big city. I'm calling for a question uh, for you or actually probably one of your medical experts that you have guest star sometimes on your show. I am looking at probably having to have my tonsils removed sometime this summer. And the question that I have is how long it will be before I can perform oral sex on my partners after that. My partners are all either women or trans men, um, and that's something that my primary care physician is aware of, but it's not necessarily something that the specialist that I'm seeing for the tonsillectomy knows or, for that matter, needs to know. But uh, so I'm not really sure like how to ask that question of the doctors who are actually going to be performing the surgery. So I wanted to ask you or uh, your medical guy and see if they had any advice for how long I should wait after surgery to be able to suck the trans cock that I love so much. Golly, we wish you left a callback number because your call prompted this debate about what exactly the fuck it is you're talking about. When you say you want to suck trans cock post tonsillectomy, um, but you say you sleep with women and trans men, which means are you sucking cock? Are you sucking strap-on dildos? Are you sucking the testosterone-enhanced, juiced-up, jacked-up clitorises that a lot of trans men who were you know, coercively assigned female at birth but are male and now have transitioned to male and body da uh, Or are you actually sleeping with trans women – born male, transitioned to female, who kept their original set, their genitalia. And so they have 
trans women cock. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. But I do know this. We shouldn't have to wait for a guest expert uh, to come on who is a doctor to tell you to ask your fucking physician. You say to them, I am an adult. I have this thing uh, called sex. Adults do that frequently and I have some questions about post-tonsillectomy, how long the healing process is, the recovery, how long I should wait before I am sexually active again with my partners and I do uh, enjoy particularly oral sex. And then let the doctor talk to you about that. That is what they are there for. Your primary physician, the jackass taking your tonsils out. If you're with a doctor who cannot answer that kind of question for an adult – about one of their adult fun holes, butt, twat, mouth, adults use those things for fun, for sex, then you really need to find another doctor. And this is a case where you need to over up. It's one thing to say like I shouldn't have to talk to my doctor about these things. But you, you should be able as a sexually active 34-year-old queer woman to talk to doctor, talk to your doctor about these things. Your doctor works for you. And so they should engage in no judgment about your sexual pursuits, activities, pleasures unless they are insanely dangerous and risky and imperil your health. And the only thing that would imperil your health about performing oral sex post-tonsillectomy is if you perform it too soon while you're still healing, while you have open sores in your mouth, before your stitches are out. Your doctor can walk you through all this. But you got to ovary up and ask. And you're going to have to tell him what exactly you mean by transcock. Hi, Dan. I'm a 42-year-old Hispanic male. Uh, I've been married for 15 years. And the reason why I'm calling is that um, I had an affair and I told my wife about it. Now, she seems to think that it was about sex. And uh, I thought so as well. But then I went into therapy and I've kind of come to the realization that it was more about my self-esteem and, you know, needing someone to fill that void. Um, but more wife thinks that it's total bullshit. Uh, to be honest, I kind of feel that way as well. I feel like it's a cop-out, but I can't help but believe that um, in my heart of hearts. And I know you're extremely honest, so I would really appreciate if you're telling me if this is total bullshit or if there's really some validity to it. Are there other people that uh, go through this, or, or is it just me? Joining me by phone to talk about these two therapy issues is Dr. Marty Klein, certified sex therapist, licensed marriage and family therapist, and author of seven books, including Sexual Intelligence, What People Really Want from Sex, and How to Get It, and a guest expert in Savage Love, and a guest expert previously on the podcast. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us, Dr. Klein. Happy to be here. So this guy, he had an affair and his wife thought it was about sex and he thought it was about sex. But, oh, then he goes into therapy and he discovers that this sex that he had, oh, it's not about sex. And it's not because he was horny and he wanted to get his rocks off and he wanted some variety after 15 years. This was about self-esteem issues Um, and he believes this. He says, I've come to the realization with the help of a therapist that this wasn't about sex, but self-esteem and his wife thinks, bullshit, it was sex. What does Dr. Marty Klein think? Well, you sound like you think it's bullshit too. (laughs) Am I leading the witness? That's just a bit. (laughs) I do think it's bullshit. Well, the the answer is I don't know, Um, but, but here's the thing. If you meet somebody on an airplane and you get to know them and you like them a lot and you say to them, you know, when we land, we both have some time for a layover. You know, I was thinking maybe we could sit in a quiet place and we could sort of cuddle 
and maybe we could uh, hug and caress and, you know, maybe just sort of enjoy being close, somebody would look at you like you're crazy. But if I, you I was going to say, that's my nightmare flight scenario right exactly. there. Exactly. But, but if somebody says to you, listen, when we land, we have a couple of hours, let's go to a hotel room and have sex, somebody might say no and somebody might say yes, but that's a recognizable category. So for a lot of people... Um, if they want anything other than sex, uh, there's no way. There's no way to ask for it. And there's no way to get it. So I personally don't know why this guy had an affair and what he wanted from it. But it's entirely possible that he wanted validation. He wanted to feel young. He wanted to feel like a real man or a real woman. If it's a woman, you know, he he wanted to feel close to somebody. There's a lot of reasons that people have affairs. And for some people, and this is especially true, you know, if we're talking about high school, young women in high school, Mm -hmm. it's especially uh, true for a lot of people that if you want anything other than sex, sometimes you have to enter a sexual affair in order to get those other things. To get the intimacy and the physical yeah. contact that you want. Yeah, or, or have someone, you know, look up at you adoringly. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for some people, they can only get that if they have an affair with somebody. And um, maybe somebody enters an affair because they're horny and, and they want to they wanna get it on with somebody. But then after two or three times of having sex, what they really get attached to is not the sex. What they really get attached to is the excitement and the sense of, wow, I'm important to somebody. Mm-hmm. So I just got too bad. I just got smacked down by Dr. Marty Klein, author of seven books on my own show, that this could be about what he's saying it's about, that it could be that he has self-esteem boo-boos and only blowing a load in someone else was able to, to heal those self-esteem boo-boos? It could be both. It could be both. There, there's no reason to think that it can't be, that it can't be both. Um, the, but the thing is, a person has to decide. A person has to decide why they're doing what they're doing, whether they approve of it or not. Whether you approve of what you're doing or not, you have to decide why you're doing it. And if you don't approve of what you're doing, or if you want to stop what you're doing, you have to figure out why you're doing what you're doing so that when you're in a similar situation next time, you can respond in a different way. So whether it's about being horny or whether it's about uh, low self-esteem, the next, guy, the next time this guy feels blue or the next time this guy feels lonely or horny or whatever, he needs a different set of responses if he does not like the response of, so I had an affair. So for some people, it helps to figure out why you do what you do. For other people, you know, they just sort of uh, white-knuckle it through. But, you know, the whole point of therapy for some people is to figure out why are you doing what you're doing so that you can make a different choice next time? So what would you say to his wife? You know, he goes, uh, you know, I'm an Occam's razor guy. I'm having a burger because I'm hungry and I'm fucking sure. this ass because I'm horny. But I- right. if it's true that this, you know, that the reason he was fucking his ass had something more to do than just horniness, that were emotional needs that weren't being met or couldn't be met by his spouse because he needed that kind of adoring gaze you really sometimes can only get from somebody brand new. What does he say to his wife if they're in disagreement? She's saying it was sex. He's saying it was Fifi's, what would you say to the wife? I would say it only matters why he did it as a way of talking about what kind of a relationship do you want moving forward. So if you want to have, let's just say, a sexually exclusive relationship, then what do you two need to do in order to make that most likely? If you two want to have a relationship where there's more verbal honesty, what do you need to do in order to move forward? So it, it really only matters why he did it um, 
as a vehicle for talking about what do we want to create in the future. Mm-hmm. And that apparently is the conversation the two of them need to have. What kind of a relationship do we want to have? And what do we need to change in order to have that? Do we need more sex? Do we need different sex? Do we need less sex? Do we need a different arrangement? That's, that's really the only reason to talk about why he did it. And maybe, you know, come to think of it, there are studies that show that men fear their wives having sex with somebody else, just sex, and wives fear their husbands having an emotional affair, an emotional attachment. They don't care as much about the actual sex sex. So maybe her desire to round this down to a just sex thing is her protecting herself emotionally. Well, that makes a lot of sense. You know, if it's just sex, then um, he just gets to be a selfish jerk. Mm-hmm. If it's, uh, I was lonely and you don't make me feel important, that's a lot more complicated question. Can you hang out for one more question with us, Doctor? Absolutely. Hi, Dan. My name's Amber, and um, I've been seeing my therapist for about a year for sexual trauma, specifically a BDSM relationship that was disguising some abuse. And overall, I'm really happy with my therapist. But I'm entering into a poly relationship with a man who's already got a main partner, and this man is very into BDSM, and I'm interested in exploring both poly and BDSM with him. My problem is I don't feel like my therapist approves of either poly or BDSM. I understand that I could just be, like, playing out old patterning in new ways, but I really want to try it, especially since this man is so gentle and openly affectionate. I feel safe. So my question is this. How do I handle my therapist? I really don't want to seek out a new one, but I don't appreciate it when she tells me that women bond men differently and are, like, therefore not suited to non-monogamous relationships. So... Help me out. So here we have this woman who was in an abusive relationship where some of the abuse was flying under the BDSM radar and she's about to enter into a new one and her therapist is saying, no, don't, no, don't. Women are not suited for non-monogamy and women – and she doesn't think she should do BDSM. Does this woman need to listen to her therapist or get a new one? Those aren't the only two choices. Ah, oh, you're complicating my, my simple black and white world again. <laughs> I didn't get this far by, like, digging into nuances and shit. Just like, yes or no, right or wrong, fuck it or don't fuck it. Go ahead. That, that's why in a couple of minutes I'm going to hang up and you're going to still be there. <laughs> so what would you tell her? Uh, is, isn't it interesting that this woman is being topped by her therapist? <laughs> her dom-sub relationship with her therapist. Yes, yes. So what I would say to this woman is... Here's a chance to practice your BDSM skills with your therapist, which is to say setting limits, discussing the relationship, discussing collaboratively what does and does not work, and discussing can we put something in, in, in one corner, put it aside, and continue to enjoy the rest of the relationship. So here's, a, here's an opportunity for this woman to say to the therapist, look, I want to continue my relationship with you, and there's something about the relationship that doesn't work. Let's you and me work together to figure out how do we craft the rest of the relationship so it continues to be valuable, even though I don't value this one behavior of yours. Often when I have people, you know, people are on, or I write to them in the columns, you probably need to speak to a sex-positive counselor. You're a sex-positive 
counselor and therapist. Are women not cut out for non-monogamy? Is BDSM always abused in your professional opinion with your 30-plus years of experience? Those are two different questions. The second question is real simple. Is, is, uh, is BDSM always uh, a replication of previous abuse? Not only is the answer no, it's not always a replication of previous abuse. There's virtually no correlation between what people want in bed today and what happened to them when they were nine years old. Um, there's no reason to think, there's no reason to, to, to look for to look for some kind of exotic explanation for why people want BDSM activities. Some of those people are badly damaged. Some of those people are healthy. Some people who like vanilla ice cream are badly damaged, and some people, like me, who like vanilla ice cream <laughs> are perfectly fine. So um, there's no reason to think that a thousand, if you take a 1,000 people who are into BDSM, that there's more damaged people in that group than in your average 1,000 people who are, you know, watching a Seattle Mariners game. All of that said, all of that said, um, what, what really troubles me about this is when the therapist is generalizing this, this unique individual who's in therapy with her, she's generalizing by talking about 3 billion people, which is women, right? That's a category of 3 billion people and saying women are like this, men are like that. And the whole point of therapy and the reason you spend a lot of money on therapy instead of simply relying on uh, the mass media, you know, instead of relying on uh, old wives' tales or, or whatever. Or faggots or podcasts. Yeah, well, the reason we go to individual therapy is so that somebody can get to know us as a unique individual and not, and not say, well, people like you. No, not people like you, you. So here's a woman who says, I've been, I've, I've been involved with BDSM before. Maybe I've learned a few things. Maybe I'm still curious about things. I'd like to give it another try. So I think it's, it's, re- it's, it's reasonable for the therapist to say to her, hmm, Let's talk about why you're still so curious about this, not from a pathology point of view, but from a curiosity point of view. Let's talk about why you're still so interested in this. And if you are, let's talk about what could go right and what could go wrong. Dr. Marty Klein, sex therapist, licensed marriage and family therapist, author of seven books, including Sexual Intelligence, What People Really Want from Sex and How to Get It. You can follow Marty on Twitter at what's your Twitter handle? D.R. Marty Klein, M-A-R-T-Y-K-L-E-I-N. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us, Dr. Klein. Thank you. Hi, uh, Mr. Savage. Colin, with a problem I haven't really, I don't think I've ever heard you talk about on uh, your cast. About a year ago, I ended my first serious DS relationship. And in that time, the woman who I was involved with has gotten involved with somebody else, and you know, obviously she's moved on. In that time, I've gotten married. But since then, there's been a few instances where I have been dungeon monitoring a play party where my ex and her new dominant have been and have been playing, and things ended badly between us, mainly through, action, mainly through actions of uh, my own. And I'm trying to uh, come to terms with that and, you know, what that relationship meant as it ended. I also find myself just having a really hard time being in the same place as them when they're playing. And I know that, you know, it's been a year and I should be getting over these types of things. But it's a unique problem for people in the kink 
and even the swinging communities to see people who they used to be involved with in intimate personal situations with their new significant others. Um, and I've never really heard anybody talk about how to deal with this beyond just, you know, get over it when you get over it or talk about it or just deal is the advice that I've gotten from some people. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. So I just had one quick follow-up question for you. What is it exactly when you see your sub-ex, however you, you, you think of her, uh, with her new dom and they're playing, what is it exactly that goes through your head that's so traumatizing? Um, mainly it's just, it's jealousy. You know, it's like that, that's someone that used to be mine and they're doing things that we used to do. And I mean, I've seen in the past, you know, ex-girlfriends out with new boyfriends or with friends. And I felt like a little bit of jealousy, but you haven't had to watch them fuck. Yeah. I haven't (laughs) had to watch them fuck. I haven't had to watch her be, you know, kneeling at his feet and, Mm. Um, getting spanked and getting, you know, played with by him. Okay, well, you, you know, you don't have to be a dungeon monitor. That That's an elective, not a requirement. You can be in the kink community, and if you don't have some official role at a party, you can get up and go whenever you want. Um, but my advice to you would be, and, and I've talked about this with gay, with gay people, it's such a small world mm-hmm. that if you sleep with somebody, you're going to run into that person. So if it was a negative mm-hmm. experience or you know you don't want to sleep with them again, don't frost them. Don't ignore them. Don't pretend that they're not standing in front of you at the gym. You smile. You nod. You say hello. You be polite. You can even have a combo where you go, this is a little awkward, but you know it's good to see you and that was fun and let's, let's be polite to each other and chit-chatty because we're never going to not see each other around and be awkward to ignore each other for the rest of our lives. And just you throw mm-hmm. that awkwardness on the table, like this is a little awkward. You know that was great. I'm really not interested in, you know, pursuing anything, but I don't want this to be weird. So hey, yeah. and then and at that moment, that exchange, that will be very awkward. But then the next time you see them and you smile and nod and you say hey, it'll be less awkward, and it proceeds to become less and less and less and less awkward until it's just not awkward anymore. And you kind of have to make yourself do that with her. Are you guys on speaking terms? Do you say hello? <laughs> that's actually a little bit uh, weird. About six months ago, we had our first conversation after the breakup, um, and we had kind of left it at we were going to try to do that. I was going to come up to her and talk to her and, uh, you know, basically acknowledge her at parties and things like that. But I asked her, kind of out of respect for my mental state, if if it was pot. I mean, if she could not play in an instance where I couldn't walk away. And when you said, I don't, you don't have to be a dungeon monitor. I kind of do. I'm a board member of the local King group. And the only parties that I DM at are our parties. Okay. Well, that's an unfair thing to ask somebody who's also a member of the club that if I'm there and I'm there a lot and I can't not be there, you can't play. Like you just have to eat it. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta stuff it down and eat it. And feel your feelings and you can feel a little jealous and be a little weird. You can turn a blind eye as best you can. But I realize as a dungeon monitor, you're supposed to observe closely everyone's activities. Uh, but uh-huh. you're just going to have to nut up and eat that. And then uh-huh. continue to be polite and pretty kind and like aversion therapy. Like I have a snake phobia. Here, hold a snake. Ah! Like the first 10,000 times you hold that snake, you're going to flip. You know, maybe the first few times, dozen times you see her out playing with – Somebody else, this somebody else, or the next somebody else, you're going to flip. But eventually, you'll be like the former snake phobe tossing boa constrictors <laughs> around. 
Hopefully. But there's nothing you can do about it. You're just going to have to power through it and fake it till you make it. Pretend like it doesn't bother you and soon you'll carve a groove into yourself where you, then one day you realize, you know, this isn't really bothering me anymore. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much the advice that I've gotten from a lot of people. I was just, I don't know, wanted the outside opinion of someone. <laughs> Most of the people that I've gotten advice from are friends of both of us. So I've just wanted to get somebody who was completely and, outside of the and do it for situation. Your f- do it for your friends. It really is hard when, you know, people are together for a while, they break up, they have a lot of mutual friends and there's this real sort of tension. It, don't think about doing it for her if you're still mad or there's any lingering ill will. Think about patching it up with her and manning, you know, nutting up, overing up uh, as something you're giving to your friends who are in this position where they're going to feel really awkward knowing that you you are seething or she's feeling weird. Just like power through it as a gift for them. Okay? Okay. All right, thank you. Good luck. Hey, Dan. I am a 26-year-old, mostly straight mama of two. I'm divorced uh, about a year and a half ago from my husband of five years for various reasons, mostly lack of communication and passive aggressiveness, I guess. It was a pretty sexually oppressive relationship, I think. Uh, We had a lot of problems in that department. He was basically asexual, and I am a very sexual person. I want to do it all the time. There was like a year where I think we had sex maybe 11 times in that year. It was pretty rough going. Anyway, we still live together, although we are not together. with co-parenting, and I am in a new relationship. It's about three months in, and the first three weeks um, was really awesome. Well, the first month and a half was really awesome, but um, three weeks, things were pretty chill. And then he brought up the idea of monogamy. And I wasn't really sure about that because I just got out of this relationship and didn't really feel ready for that. But he he brought it up, and then I brought up the fact that I was kind of kinky and had been to a swingers party and didn't know if he was okay with that. And um, we had made plans to go to Portland, and one of those plans while I was in Portland was to go to the singers club I was really interested in, and so he knew that from from the get, from like the first week. So we go up there, and I ended up going just to take a tour, just wanted to see what it was like, and um, he got really super jealous, and this was like three and a half weeks in, and we talked about it, and he seemed okay with things, but he really wasn't into it, and then he brought up monogamy again, and I thought, okay, well, we'll maybe we'll give this a shot. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. We have been together since then, and it's been really fun. Sex has been amazing, but there's been a couple holdups where, as I said before, I'm kind of kinky, and I don't know how much he's into that. I've talked about you know, having him tie me up, and he's talked fantasy, asking what my fantasy was, and I told him, and then he kind of freaked out. It was, you know, just the simple things, like, oh, a threesome, maybe. Like, and he thought, oh, is this with a guy? And I said, well, I don't know, maybe. And he's like, I don't want to watch you fucking another guy. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, well, don't ask me my fantasies, and I won't tell you. I don't know if it sounds like a... GGG relationship. I really want to be GGG. I go down on him all the time. I really like it. I really like having sex with him. It's awesome. I just want to 
open stop, it. Stop, stop, shut up. Okay, I get it. Um, you don't get it. I get it. I don't have to listen to the rest of your call. Uh, you are not sexually compatible with this dude that you have invested one and a half or three months in, whichever it was. So end it. It is over. You were in a sexually unsatisfying marriage for five years. Your marriage ended because you and your husband were sexually incompatible. Some people would say that somebody is 26 years old and married and has two small children having sex once a month. That couple is doing pretty good actually with two small children in the house but not enough for you and your marriage collapsed because of sexual incompatibility. This guy wants to be monogamous. You do not want to be monogamous. You have kinks. You've rolled out some of the minor ones and he freaked out. It's not going to work. It's going to make you unhappy, miserable. You have a right, lady, to seek a man that you are sexually compatible with. You do not have to make every relationship work. You don't have to take the first dude that comes along and do the socialize to be the girl thing and try to figure out how to make this work and please him and roll, you know, package your shit in such a way that he'll eat it. Fuck him. There are 3.5 billion other men on the planet. Go date some of them. Go find one with whom you are sexually compatible. What you know about this guy, however much you like him, in every other respect is you guys are not going to work out sexually and what we know about you given your recent marital history is that spells the death, the end of the relationship. That eventually that disconnect, that sexual incompatibility will end the relationship. So end this fucking relationship now. You know it's already over. It's already dead. Kill it. Finish killing it. It's over. Break up with him. Move on. It's not going to work. Hi, Dan. I've been sleeping with this guy for a while and I just his balls do this really weird thing where they like retract into his groin and then they shimmy around the shaft of his penis and just kind of like hang out in the skin, like kind of up on the mound. And I mean, like sometimes this happens with one testicle and sometimes with both. Like the first time we hooked up, I actually thought that he only had one ball. And so I was really confused when the next time he took off his pants, there were two of them. Um, I mean, you can kind of like poke them back down into the ball sick sack, but he usually leaves them where they are. Uh, it doesn't have any major problems or anything. Um, I mean, he doesn't like it when I'm on top because sometimes it kind of squishes his balls between us, but he absolutely won't talk to me about it. Like the first time he, I mentioned it, he flat out denied it. Um, and it's kind of hard not to be curious when I've never seen anything like this before. Uh, I try not to make a big deal out of it. Like when I'm going down on him, like I just kind of fondle them like they're normal balls, even if they're like in a really weird place. Um, but I mean, he just won't give me anything. Like the most he's ever said was once, uh, when I was kind of playing with them, I was like, Oh, have they always done that? And he said pretty much. And that's that. So I'm, I can't find much useful information online about this. Is it like something that he should be worried about? Is it something that's kind of normal? I just have no idea. Sperm cells are very sensitive to heat. And if they get too hot, they're not good swimmers and they die, which is why the testes are outside the body. Uh, it's why balls are in a sack that's sort of hanging off the body where it's cooler. They have more circulation. Uh, but the balls are originally inside the body. They're actually t these two cavities where the balls were before puberty from which the balls descend. And the balls are attached to these things called cremaster muscles that regulate their temperature, that sort of raise up, that, that, that draw the balls closer to the body uh, when they're scared or when they're too cold or when someone's aroused, the cremaster muscles contract and raise the balls up. And in some guys, it is perfectly normal 
for the balls to go all the way up, to kind of pop back into those cavities from which they originally descended. So your boyfriend's balls are not abnormal. They're just a different kind of ball normal. Most guys, the cremasters contract. They don't contract that far, so they don't pop back into that cavity, which is above the shaft. But his do, and there's nothing wrong with that, just like there's a wide variation in the way labia look. And scrotum is made of labia, and there's wide variations in the way labia look and how they feel and flap around. There are wide variations in the way scrotums look and feel and flap around. Some guys have high and tight scrotums. They don't have low hangers. Some guys, their balls pop up back into their body when they're super aroused or about to blow or it's cold out or they're running from somebody with a gun, and it's all perfectly normal. There's nothing wrong with your guy's balls except for the girl fondling them who thinks there's something wrong with them. There's something wrong with you. You need to meet more sets of balls apparently because this is not an uncommon thing. It has been my experience, my vast experience it has been. There are also sex toys that you can get that will hold his balls down and prevent them from popping up into his body. You can put a little ball stretcher around his sack that his balls will not fit through. It's like a little cock ring for his nut sack and they make them out of uh, silicone and they can be stretchy but they will prevent his balls from rising back up into his body and some guys who have that balls contract fully uh, retraction superpower enjoy that. They enjoy that feeling of the cremaster pulling against the balls but the balls not being able to go all the way up. So you can go online. Why not? Go online. Go to our friend Oxballs site oxballs.com and click on cock and ball toys and you will find those things, those nut nuts basically that you can wrap around your boyfriend's sack. You might not want to keep clicking around oxballs.com though, straight lady, because if balls that retract naturally, normally, as is very common, if that shit freaks you out, there is stuff on oxballs.com that is going to give you screaming ass nightmares. So just squint and click on oxballs.com and cock and ball toys and go right to those and don't keep looking around. I can't promise you your lunch will stay where you put it. on the ukulele, which he's occasionally on when he's not on me. Um, got a letter this week, kind of pissed me off. Uh, a heartbreaking letter, 16-year-old boy. He writes, I was recently forced to come out of the closet. My mother asked me if I saw a future with a woman. I did not respond because I did not want to lie anymore and I have regretted my silence since. My family is strict Catholic and Republican and I'm the youngest and since my mother found out I might be gay – she immediately had a conversation and she let me know that they will never give up on me but they will never accept this. And basically he details a lot of emotional and spiritual bullying at the hands of his parents um, who are strict Catholics and strict Republicans. And that means if, when you have a gay kid, uh, at least initially, when they're at their most vulnerable, if you're a good Catholic and a good Republican, you have to punch that vulnerable gay kid in the face over and over and over again, which is what these – Parents are doing to their son, including telling him they think there's a demon in him, which isn't helpful. Anyway, I ran this kid's letter as a Savage Love Letter of the Day last week and asked my readers to please jump in and offer their love and support and advice for this kid and my readers did 
and did in spades. My readers have done that before. Really come through for LGBT kids who are suffering. What is the It Gets Better project? But my readers coming through uh, and my listeners coming through for LGBT kids that are suffering. And I just have to say, you know, I can't imagine there are parents out there who are homophobic with teenage kids um, who would listen to my show. But I just, I really got to get this off my chest. You know, you cannot make. Your gay kid straight by bullying the fuck out of him when he comes out or is outed or you force him to come out. You can make your gay kid not be at all. You can drive your LGBT kid to suicide or to self-destructiveness that is a form of slow-mo suicide. It's a story from Scientific American just a couple of years ago. Parental rejection of gay teens worsens health. Parents' intolerance of their gay and lesbian teens increases the chance that they will suffer health problems in young adulthood, including increased risk of suicide, depression, drug abuse, and unsafe sex, new research shows. This really undergirds something that my mother would say to people. One of the things I said to this kid when I responded to his letter was, God, I wish my mother was still alive because I would – Get your mother's phone number and I would have my mother call your mother and I would have my mother read your mother, as they say on RuPaul, to within an inch of her life. I did this a couple of times. I would hear from gay kids whose parents were being super duper shitty. They'd call my show. They'd write me and I would call in the cavalry. I would call in Judy fucking Savage and I would say, mom, here's a mom who needs to hear from you. And I heard her say it once or twice and it was it was good and if you're out there, if you're listening, I can't imagine there are any homophobic moms and dads listening. But maybe you know a homophobic mom or dad who is abusing their gay kid, who's rejecting their gay, lesbian, bi or trans kid, pushing that kid to increased risk of suicide, increased risk of drug and alcohol abuse, sexual self-abuse in the worst possible way, uh, unsafe sex, those risks. This is what my mother would say to those parents when she got them on the phone. She would say – if what you want is to destroy your relationship with your son, if what you want is your son to drop out of school, if what you want is for your son to run away from home, get addicted to drugs, abuse alcohol, live on the streets, engage in survival prostitution, all of that by this time next year, if that's what you want for your son, if you want your son to commit suicide, then you just keep doing what you're doing. Because if that's what you want for your son, lady, you are doing everything right. My mom, ladies and gentlemen, she's only here for 60 some odd years but boy, did she have an impact and I would see her stick a knife into an asshole parent and dig away until she found that asshole parent's heart and pierce it. If you know somebody who is rejecting their gay kid, if there's someone in your family who is abusing their gay kid and, and this kind of rejection that, that this research is talking about, that Scientific American in the paper they cite, it isn't Baroque. It isn't throwing gay kids down the stairs. It isn't beating the shit out of them. It isn't breaking their bones. It's hostility. It's silent rejection. It's disapproval. That's all it takes to increase the risk for suicide, drug and alcohol abuse, unsafe sex, just hostility. If you know somebody who's doing that to a gay kid, rewind the tape. Memorize what my mother would say to those people and call them up and fucking say it to them. Come to that kid's defense. Say that. If what you want is your kid to commit suicide. If what do you want to do? You're not going to be able to make your gay kid straight. But you can make your gay kid dead. If that's what you want, lady, keep it up. Keep doing what you're doing because you're doing everything right if what you want is a dead kid. Because it's not going to get you a straight kid but it will get you a dead kid. Heartbreaking that this is still going on. Heartbreaking. That for so many LGBT kids, we talk about bullying, we talk about bullies, but for so many LGBT kids, the worst bullies, the worst bullying they endure, the bullies their parents, bullying at home, fucking pisses me off.
And it fucking pissed my mother off too. And God, I wrote back to this kid. I had Aaron Hartzler, author of Rapture Practice, who's been a guest on the show recently. He wrote a long letter to this kid. I asked my readers and Twitter followers to please write to this kid uh, and help him out, help him get through this. But God, I wish I could have sicked my mother on him. But Judy Savage is gone. But all you out there, you are all deputized to be the Judy Savage that queer kids sometimes need in their lives. I know there are people listening to the sound of my voice who have an uncle or a relative or a cousin who's got a queer kid, who's got a gay kid or a lesbian kid or a gender nonconforming kid or a trans kid and those parents are being shitty. It is your job to get in the face of those parents while there's still time before they destroy their own child. Hi, Dan. I'm calling from the United Arab Emirates and specifically Dubai. So that you know that uh, even here where sex out of marriage can be punished by imprisonment and deportation for us foreigners, you have uh, listener and followers. My question for you is not about sex, uh, but about lifestyle. My boyfriend is uh, American. We met online five years ago. And after about nine months of Skyping, talking, etc., I decided to fly to America. I met him. It was summer. After three, four months, we had an amazing three days, and we immediately understood we were great for each other, and we could have. Uh, we we started basically to plan uh, uh, a lifestyle, uh, a life together. Um, problem is, uh, he's American citizen. I'm an Italian citizen, living in Dubai. And logistically, the relationship uh, uh, had to <laughs> decide where to live, what, what to do. So he left his job uh, and left his life, left everything, sold his car and everything in America and came here to Dubai for a few months. But he can stay in Dubai only one month uh, and then he has to leave the country, get the visa again and come back in. Uh, in Italy, we can only stay three months. And I can stay only three months in the United States because even if he's uh, a Massachusetts resident, so uh, gay ma marriage are, uh, is legal over there, federally I am not recognized as his husband because uh, Massachusetts uh, law is not enough for me to get a visa to stay in America with him. So my American partner had to face this tough decision, which was uh, I leave my love or I leave my country. So we can't really have both. Here in Dubai, being gay, you get in jail for 10 years for consensual sex if they catch you or someone reports you. And uh, in Italy, there's not such punishment, but we can't really stay there. Uh, in America, I'm just coming for a holiday. Now it, we've been together five years, and it starts to be complicated. So I just wanted to know from you if you can maybe talk about this, because we always speak about gay marriage. But it seems like international partners are completely forgotten. Joining me by phone to help answer this question, Tom Plummer of Immigration Equality, a national organization fighting for equality under U.S. immigration law for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and HIV-positive individuals. Tom is an attorney who focuses on advocacy and litigation on behalf of binational couples. Uh, thanks for joining us, Tom. Thanks for having me. So binational gay couples, a lot of people think that because gay marriage is legal in 13 states now that if you're gay and you're in one of those states, you have full equality under the law as a same-sex couple and that, particularly on this front, is not the case. Um, no, it isn't. Um, because of the Defense of Marriage Act, um, the federal government 
is will not recognize couples that are legally married um, for federal purposes. And so that affects over a thousand different federal rights, um, among them the federal rights to have your relationship recognized by uh, for immigration purposes. Um, so opposite-sex couples are able to sponsor their foreign national spouse for residency in the United States, but gay and lesbian families are excluded from that as a result of the Defense of Marriage Act. So if this caller had met a female American, this Italian man living in Dubai, had met a, an American woman and they had fallen in love and it had been five years and they were married or, or, or could marry, this, this couple could live together in the United States. He could get a green card and they could emigrate or he could emigrate and the American could return home. Yeah, exactly. And that happens that happens every day all around the uh, the globe. American citizens fall in love with with citizens of other countries. Our immigration system is based upon the idea of uh, of uniting families, but as a result of the discrimination at the heart of the so-called Defense of Marriage Act, gay and lesbian families are excluded from that. Now there was originally a plan to include us in immigration reform, to include binational gay couples in immigration reform, and what happened? Well, the president came out with a framework for immigration reform and included gay and lesbian families in his framework. Um, the um, Gang of Eight on the Senate um, came up with a, a bill um, for comprehensive immigration reform, and we were not included. Um, despite the leadership of Chairman Leahy and the Senate Judiciary Committee, senators on the Gang of Eight really caved to Republican bullying and um, the bill was not amended to include gay and lesbian families. Which is really mind-blowing because Republicans need immigration reform more than Democrats do. And if Democrats were told that the, you know, there's a majority in the Senate for same-sex marriage now, for full civil equality, for gay and lesbian citizens, and yet Democrats caved on this instead of looking at the Republicans and saying, we dare you to vote immigration reform down and we're including this. The, the cowardice, the political cowardice at that moment was just kind of staggering, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I think there was there, – Chairman Leahy, who has been the lead um, sponsor for the United American Families Act for, for many, many years, filed the amendments. Um, but a number of Democratic senators spoke up and really um, backed down from the, the threats of the Republican colleagues. And uh, as a result, Senator Leahy withdrew um, the amendment. Um, we are committed to moving forward on that front. Um, we're hopeful that the Supreme Court um, will issue a ruling in the coming weeks um, that will achieve equality for, for affected families. No, no, um, no. Wait, we, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. That there is hope sure. that even though the United American Families Act isn't a part of immigration reform, that we are waiting on the DOMA decision from the Supreme Court coming down later this month. And that might, in a, that might rescue this couple from do fucking buy, which can't be a really great place to be a gay couple. Like, I mean, how, how mind blowing is that, that you have this gay couple that is seeking refuge in Dubai? You know, there are families in exile all around the globe. Um, but who, Dubai, where they throw gay people in prison? Dubai? Dubai is, is it would not be my first pick um, if I was going into exile with my U.S. citizen spouse. Um, but it, this is an example where um, the, Italy has uh, does not have marriage equality. Um, the United States does not have federal marriage equality. And so for some families like this family, um, the options are few. Um, but the cavalry, and, the cavalry may be coming in, in the form of the Supreme Court decision that we're waiting on for DOMA. What would the DOMA decision, if it goes our way, do for this couple? 
if the Supreme Court strikes down the Defense of Marriage Act in the case um, before it, um, United States v. Windsor, um, it's our expectation that uh, DOMA will be ruled unconstitutional by the court, and if so, gay and lesbian families who are married um, will be able to sponsor their foreign national spouses for immigration benefits. So these guys would then, if the Supreme Court throws out DOMA, have the option of coming to Massachusetts, marrying, and then filing for residency for the Italian partner. That's correct. Um, immigration equality has been committed to fighting on all fronts because while we're hopeful that the Supreme Court will make the right decision and and follow the lead of the multiple federal courts that have struck down DOMA, um, we're not going to bet all our money on one horse. And with comprehensive immigration reform moving forward, if we have an adverse decision from the Supreme Court or we've yet to receive a decision from the Supreme Court, we are really calling upon the Democratic leadership in the Senate to make sure that we have the votes to add the Uniting American Families Act to comprehensive immigration reform on the floor of the Senate. Now, what, before I let you go quickly, what is the argument from the other side? What the, the anti-gay marriage side, the opponents of the United American Uniting American Families Act? What is their argument for for keeping these guys a apart if they have if like other binational couples they have to split up or b living in exile? What benefit to the traditional family does that? present? I mean, when we introduced the Uniting American, when I should say, when the Uniting American Families Act was introduced during this Congress in the Senate and the House, it was introduced with bipartisan support, um, both Republican co-sponsors and Democratic sponsors in both the House and Senate. I don't think there's another side. Um, I think that there, are, there have been some um, who have sort of scapegoated gay families um, in this particular context. But the overwhelming majority of Americans, um, the business community, the faith community, the labor community, um, support family um, support family reunification and believe that gay and lesbian families should be included in that. What I've heard is that the argument that's currently being crafted by NAM is every child deserves a mother and a father. And when I when I look at this particular situation, the Italian man uh, living in Dubai, his American lover and possible husband, could be husband, living in Dubai and them not having the option of living in either country. I don't see how preventing them from marrying or preventing the Italian uh, partner from emigrating, I don't see how that provides a father or a mother to any child. You know, and the estimates are that there are 36,000 families, same-sex binational couples in the United States. That's just the tip of the iceberg because families like um, the family in Dubai have gone into exile. Other families have been torn apart. Estimates are that 40% of those families are raising children, um, allowing families to stay together, giving children a, a safe and stable and secure um, family environment is is important. Um, so th- it's uh, I, I don't buy into the argument on, on that particular front. Tom Plummer of Immigration Equality, thank you so much for joining us today. The organization is at immigrationequality.org. Go there for more info and find out how to get involved. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 33-year-old female in a heterosexual relationship. My boyfriend and I recently found out that we are pregnant, and we both agreed right away that we wanted to keep it. We had talked about having children, and we're both in our 30s. We love each other very much, and we are very committed to our relationship. But my question is about communicating with my partner about making lifestyle changes. Before being pregnant, we both drank most nights socially with friends. 
when I found out, I stopped. And now there isn't, it's not that much fun to hang out with all of our drinking friends since they still do the same thing. But he still does. He goes out every night with them. Most of our friends don't know that I'm pregnant as it's still early on the pregnancy. But for me, the changes are very real. I'm gaining weight. I'm tired. I'm nauseous. And my boobs are bigger. And aside from the bigger boobs, which hurt so bad I can't even enjoy them, he hasn't noticed much. I've asked him not to drink every night, and he says that I'm being high-strung and stressed out. But I feel like I'm carrying this little person whose brain stem cell development depends on my lifestyle choices, and that it really is a big deal. I'm trying to make decisions based on this little person who is going to come soon enough, and I just want some solidarity from my partner. I don't mind if he drinks some, but right now he goes out with friends every night and comes home late, buzzed, or more. I'm starting to feel distant from him when I wish now more than ever that we were getting closer. I know it's not as real for him as it is for me, and I wonder if I'm just being impatient, and maybe he'll get over the drinking soon. On the other hand, it's been really frustrating lately that I get home from work, and the first thing he says to me is, I want to go find some beer. Where can we get some food and some beer? And I just want to scream that I don't give a fuck if there's beer or not, as it doesn't matter much to me. We've been arguing about this the past few days, and I just want some advice from you. I feel like I'm doing the heavy lifting on this one, and that he should make some changes along with me to help usher this new life in together. But am I being high-strung? Am I being impatient? Thank you for any response that you have. I wish I could talk to him. I really do. I wish I could give your boyfriend a call and say, so, hey, was this decision as mutual as your girlfriend made it sound in her call? You say he's totally into this, but his actions don't sound too totally into this. Either he is rebelling uh, and pushing back hard against against you and he doesn't care that this is driving you crazy, that he's – coming home drunk every night and fucked up at a time when you would probably like some companionship and support uh, and some solidarity, as you say, or he feels that this is his last chance, that he's going to be a dad in seven or eight months. And these are the last months of his pre-parented life where he can really tear it the fuck up. I think you might want to talk to him about both those possibilities. Uh, A lot of people go into parenting, uh, become parents because the other person in their life really wants it and they have some ambivalence and that ambivalence is often cured by the arrival of that child. So if he's feeling somewhat ambivalent, uh, that's okay and you don't have to fucking nail him to a cross for that. You can have some ambivalent feelings about it. Terry and I had ambivalent feelings about becoming parents as we were about to become parents because so many things that we enjoyed were not going to be possible for us. He enjoys drinking. You enjoyed drinking and going out and tearing it up with your friends and being young adults and that's going to end. Maybe he's grieving that with a six-pack or more every night. I think he needs to dial it back. And maybe you guys can come to some sort of agreement about a couple of nights a week, three nights a week. You can go out and tear it up and live it up because this is going to stop. And three or four or five nights a week, you really need to find things to do with me and hang out with me and be with me or find ways to include me in the going out. And you can go out and not drink. That's a possible thing to do. And maybe if you're there, I'll drink a little less and come home a little earlier and come to some sort of agreement that allows for him to kick it up in these final days of young, carefree adulthood and gives you the support and solidarity that you deserve 
But he doesn't have to drop everything right now. He really doesn't. And you know what? Once you have kids, kid, kids, you don't want to drop everything. Once you have kids, it's going to be important that he has a night or two out a week and you do too. Don't be those – don't be one of those new parents who thinks the the medal of a good parent is never going out, never having fun and both of you being locked in a room together all the time with this baby because you will grow to hate each other really fast. You're going to need some time out alone away from the kid. He'll need some time out alone away from the kid. You guys together will need time out away from the kid together. And that's a good thing. Finding those times, allowing him to have those times and you get to have those times too and you get to have those times together as a couple. Because as Terry and I like to tell our friends who are about to become parents, the only time you remember why you liked each other well enough to want to have kids in the first place is when you're away from your kid together. So find those times. I think you guys can come to an agreement on this. Hash it out. Go talk to him. Hey, Dan. This is a faggot who was married to a woman in my early 20s, and I'm calling about your cunnilingus litmus test. Yeah, I went down on my wife a lot when we were together. Maybe not with the same jaw-dripping enthusiasm that a straight guy would, but I did it. It was a way to get her off. It felt good to her. And uh, it took the focus off my erection or my non-existent erection. Uh, so, yeah, uh, that was uh, a regular thing for us. And uh, I'm not the only guy I know who was in that position um, and who did the same thing. So something to think about. You are blowing my mind. Now, you know, not every test is perfect. Every test has a, you know, a failure rate. Pregnancy tests have failure rates. HIV tests have failure rates. That doesn't mean they're not accurate. That a test can have a failure rate and still be accurate. And I believe that my does he eat your pussy test for closeted gay husband married to a woman is pretty fucking accurate. And maybe I'm just projecting because I messed around with girls. I had sex with girls but I couldn't do that. Really hard to pretend you're fucking a guy when you're performing cunnilingus. Oh, he's a guy with a terrible gunshot wound and I have to dig the bullet out with my tongue. No, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. And maintain my sanity, much less my erection. So that's my litmus test, and I am I am sticking to it. That 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 you're the exception doesn't prove that my litmus test is without merit. It just means there needs to be further testing and other tests, duplication, and uh, further digging around. And while you claim that you're not the only one, that there were other gay guys you knew who would eat their wives' pussies to distract them from their dicks. Habeas corpus. Produce those bodies. I want to hear from those guys because I don't think that's true. But maybe it's just me. My hang-up. To each his bone. Hey there, Dan. I'm a straight lady from the Midwest region. And I'm calling to you to see if you can give me some advice on forgiveness. I am in a year and five months relationship with a great man. But he has some anger issues. Nothing physical, mostly just a blow up about small things. And they've increased in frequency over the past several months. And recently it's just been getting almost unbearable. And I've verbalized how, you know, I only have so much patience for blowing up over really unimportant things. And he knows this. The only thing is, after he's tried to, like, make up, you know, for doing stupid things, 
part of me just can't forget how much of an asshole he's been sometimes, and it's really hard for me to get over it. Like, he ruined my birthday by being pouty because he wouldn't, didn't want to be with my family on my birthday. He wanted to go visit a friend, or I make a small boo-boo on a project we're doing together. It's like the end of the world, and if he makes the same mistake, oh, it just happens. And anyway, so he just gets, he's an asshole sometimes. And I, he knows it, and I've forgiven him, but part of me is like, patience is already gone, and I don't want to lose this relationship, and I want to know, is there a way I can just forget all the shitty stuff he does every so often so I can enjoy the good times? Because it's so hard, because it happens often. Someone with these kinds of issues, the issues that your soon-to-be ex-motherfucking boyfriend have, uh, they only learn that these will cost them relationships when they get fucking dumped over and over and over again for this shit. People with this problem, it has been my experience, they don't unlearn this problem in a relationship. They unlearn. They begin to work on this. They go get a fucking therapist and chip away at it after they've been dumped again the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh or eighth time and then they realize I can't treat my girlfriend or my boyfriend like an emotional punching bag and I can't be a psycho anger bomb going off randomly and be a towering dick and not be alone. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to dump this piece of shit motherfucker before it escalates to the physical. Because this is a bad sign. A year and a half, year, year and five months in and these kind of random, you stepped in a landmine that you didn't know was there, kablooey shit. And these moments of rando rage, they're getting closer and closer together. You're going to reach that tipping point where it's most of the time it's this rage and you're tiptoeing around for fear of setting him off, which is what he wants, which what somebody with this problem unconsciously, if we want to be charitable, is trying to do to their partner. They're trying to put you forever in some kind of defensive flinchy crouch where you're always pandering to them and their feelings and you have no inner life anymore except trying not to jar that box of nitroglycerin that you're dating lest it go off again. It's really kind of slave training, right? Where you're being molded around his mercurial moods and it's going to get worse. Maybe at the beginning of the relationship when he was on his best behavior, honeymoon period, it was like 5% of the time. Then six months in, it's 20% of the time. And you're like, wow, this is a problem. Now one year and five months in, it's what? 30% of the time? 40% of the time this shit goes on? Soon it will be the majority of the time. Soon it will be all the time. And somebody with this problem who doesn't get it in check, they eventually – many of them, not all of them, many of them progress to punching, to hitting, to actual physical abuse. You want to be there for that? Here's what you're going to do. You're going to dump this motherfucker. You're going to tell him why. You're going to tell him you're not going to put up with this shit. You're going to tell him that no woman would. And if he ever finds a woman who will put up with this shit, you feel sorry for her. But you are not that woman. And he needs to get a shrink and he needs to get to work on this because it's going to cost him all his life. It's going to cost him relationships. He's going to get dumped over and over until he learns his fucking lesson. Be that lesson. Be one of those lessons. Then maybe he'll get his shit together and then maybe three or four girlfriends dump him in a row and he goes and gets his shit together and then you run into him somewhere and he's fine and he's fixed. I wouldn't date him again if I were you but maybe you could 10 years out. You'll run into him again. He's over it and he's fixed. Maybe then. Not now. He's got lessons to learn and you're going to teach him one by dumping 
the motherfucker already. Dump him. DTMFA. Dump him. It's over. Done. Get out. Hi, Dan. I was just calling in response to your comment um, in regards to whether or not to disclose to a new partner whether or not you have an IUD. Um, and I am totally with you. Absolutely do not tell them. I think that people often think this is something that's prevent, prevent pregnancy, but what we forget is most males do not show signs of STDs. And while you can't sometimes, if you'd like, do something with a pregnancy, you cannot do something um, with some of these STDs and you're going to be stuck with them forever. And also for me, I'm on my second IUD and I, uh, for one, like to have a partner work for it. And if they're responsible enough to... Uh, use a condom every time and not give me crap about it, then they're definitely want to keep around and when it's time to tell them, they'll get a nice surprise at the end that I basically can't get pregnant thanks to a 99% effective um, IUD. So, I don't know. I think that's the best way to go. Hello, this is a response to the young lady who uh, found that when she told her uh, boyfriends that uh, she was on hormonal birth control that they uh, would not want to use condoms, would forget to bring condoms, and, and so on. So I agree with your advice that uh, she doesn't have to disclose this information, shouldn't disclose this information, maybe even uh, tell a white lie, and, and uh, that, that's all fine. But shouldn't she have her own supply of condoms? I mean, it shouldn't all just be on the guy to, to bring them along. Uh, so just thought I'd say that. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to your rant on episode 345 about why women aren't more responsive on sites like Plenty of Fish. It's not just about a fear of rape and other violence. It's also the lack of respect displayed by the guys on these sites, the guys who cancel at the last minute or show up an hour late or don't show up at all. Maybe they are afraid they can't live up to their online persona, but it's a waste of my time to set up a meeting in the evening, get all dolled up, and then you don't show. This isn't a game to us. It's happened to me repeatedly, and it's particularly bad when the younger guys, with the younger guys, so I don't even respond to anyone under the age of 35. So guys, when you're following Dan's advice to tell each other not to rape and hurt a woman, also tell each other it's important to actually show up when you say you will and respect the woman you want to have sex with you. Thanks. And we're going to leave you there, Magnum Podcasters. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. My new book, American Savage, is in stores now. Please buy a copy. Please read it. You can follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.